This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Jennifer Kynan and Bobby Martin, founding partners of the graphic design firm OCD, about the philosophy behind their work and their willingness to do the unexpected. If you're doing something where everybody's going to be happy, then it's probably not the right thing. It's not really what I want to be doing. If people aren't shocked and surprised, then you might be wasting your time. Here's Debbie Millman. Jennifer Kynan used to work for Michael Beirut at Pentagram. And she was the art director for Graphice. Bobby Martin used to lead internal teams at Nokia in London and at Jazz at Lincoln Center. A couple of years ago, they founded OCD, the original champions of design, a branding and design agency. They are a small shop, but some of their clients, like the WNBA and the Girl Scouts of the USA, are anything but Jennifer Kynan is a colleague of mine at the School of Visual Arts in New York, and both Jennifer and Bobby are here to talk about their careers, their work, and their partnership. Welcome to Design Matters, Bobby and Jennifer. Hello. Thank you. So, Jennifer, the first question I have for you is a curious one. Is it true that the one thing that you wish you had designed is the McMuffin wrapper? It's true. I love the McMuffin wrapper. First of all, do you love McMuffins? I I don't know if I've ever had a McMuffin. Then how would you see the wrapper? They're on the sidewalk all the time. <laughs> so you picked one up, happened to look I, at it. And... I often look down when I walk, and as a result, I bump into things. But I also discover things. And I was walking along the sidewalk one day, and I looked down, and there's that yellow wrapper And what's beautiful about it is it's everywhere. It's omnipresent. McDonald's has that far-reaching reach that every designer wishes they could have. But it's also quite efficient. One McMuffin wrapper serves all of the McMuffins. All the varieties that are possible in McMuffin universe. The McMuffin kingdom is served by one wrapper. Wow. That's pretty – that is pretty amazing, actually. It's brilliant. And the yellow paper with the primary color ink and you just place your McMuffin on the right circle and it's labeled and it's ready to go. I have to confess that I really love McMuffins. (laughs) And and in all this time, I've rarely noticed, if ever, noticed the wrapper, which is kind of interesting given what I do during the day. Um, So you graduated from the University of Michigan and then earned an MFA from the School of Visual Arts, and you happened to be the first program graduate to join the faculty. So congratulations there. When did you know you wanted to be a graphic designer? I read that you wanted to be an FBI agent. (laughs) (laughs) I think I would be a very good FBI agent. Why is that? I enjoy being active. I enjoy solving problems. I always was hoping the FBI would discover me and call me. Sort of like alias style, find you in college and recruit you? They would just know they needed me, but it never happened. So I had to solve my career on my own. And I was quite strategic. I went to University of Michigan because it's a humongous public university with tons of majors. And I eliminated organic chemistry first semester freshman year. And then I went on to some anatomy and poli-sci. And I almost got minor in business. I did a lot of econ and accounting. But one summer, I I had a job as a lifeguard, and we were preparing for the summer carnival, and I painted a sponge toss that I was very proud of. Someone said, go show that to Shelby. She's a graphic designer. So I showed Shelby my sponge toss, and she absolutely destroyed it. And I was 
completely furious with her edits, and I figured if Shelby could be a graphic designer, I could do it better. So you didn't realize that you <laughs> wanted to be a graphic designer until college? No, not until not until I was well into college. I took my first graphic design class, I believe, my junior year in college. Oh, okay. Junior year. Yeah, it came late. And so then did you switch majors or did you just continue to pursue your interest in graphic design in random classes? Well, I, I tacked on. I was, um, I was an athlete at Michigan. I was a rower. We went varsity my second year, so I had an extra year of eligibility. My coach asked me to stay. I said, sure, I'll grab a second degree. And, and then I worked in consulting for a year and applied for a graduate degree at SVA. And so when you graduated from SVA, your first job was at Graffis. Yeah. And so how did you get such a prestigious first job as art director of one of the great art and design magazines? I got really lucky. I interned. I had a few different internships in my graduate year, and one of them was at Graffiti because I, I was trying to leverage both my English and my graphic design experience. So I started out in magazines, and I, I worked with Letitia Wolf and Marty Pedersen for a summer, and then they. Asked That's me an to education come back. in and of itself. It is. That's it's amazing. <laughs> and so you went from there to serve as the design director of New York City's 2012 Olympic bid. Indeed. And how did that happen? I don't think this is just luck, Jennifer. You have to give us some sort of inside view into how you managed to do all this so early in your career. Well, it, a lot of it has to do with my partner. A lot of it has to do with Bobby. He graduated from SVA and went to work with Brian Collins. And Brian Collins was one of the many designers who was allowed to submit a logo design for the Olympic bid. And he won the competition and developed the identity system for the 2012 Olympic bid. Which was beautiful, by the way, the Statue of Liberty hand and the marathon and the runner. Hand. Yes, exactly yeah, it right. It was really, really beautiful. <laughs> that was the identity system. It was all pro bono work, so they needed someone gullible to do the brand guidelines. And that was me because Bobby knew my background as a rower. I was totally Olympic'd out, total geek loved anything. So I would go in on the weekends during Gruffies and do the identity system. And then when they needed someone in-house, Bobby and Brian got me in there somehow. And so you met here at the School of Visual Arts. Correct. Talk about that first impression that you had of each other. Bobby, why don't you start? I have a whole <laughs> slew of questions I want to ask you, but we'll come back to your beginnings after we find out how you first met. Well, we had a uh, an interesting experience at, at SVA because our first week in the program was September 11th. That had a profound impact on everybody. And Jennifer was one of the only people in the program who knew somebody in the World Trade Center building. And so when we were asked to participate in designing some type of tribute, it was very difficult for Jennifer to participate without getting emotional. And that was the first time I really noticed that she um, cared deeply about not just design, but how she can have an emotional reaction and that affects what she does. So she actually chose to not participate in the assignment. We actually sat right next to each other and um, we had quite different perspectives on design and, and backgrounds. So that contrast really led us to uh, ask each other for feedback and critiques. I thought she was really smart and I wanted to be like her. So from there, we just started to um, collaborate and ask, ask questions and challenge each other and, and that type of thing. Did you have a sense at that point about what destiny had in store for you? No. <laughs> no way. So no plotting about world domination. I think we were just, I mean, I think the other thing that really brought us together is that 
I grew up in a very competitive athletic environment in, in Virginia. So um, there were always basketball stars and football stars from my hometown of Hampton, Virginia. And that that competition for me was in the design world, was in the art world. I was always kind of taking that energy and applying it to my my craft. Jennifer understood. And so we kind of haven't slept since. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of not sleeping, uh, Jennifer, right after your work with Big for the New York City Olympic bid, you got to work in the office of Pentagram with Michael Beirut. How does one go about getting a job with Michael Beirut? Well, during the Olympic bid, life was fantastic. It was impossible. I never slept. I would throw interns on planes to Lausanne to hit deadlines. And after you have that kind of experience, you don't know what to do. So I I went to Steve Heller's office and I just said, Steve, you gave me a design career. You let me in your program. Now what do I do? You, I have these skills. I've had these experience. And he said, you know, Jennifer, my child, go take thee to Michael Beirut. <laughs> and I said, I don't know if he's going to ever answer an email from me, but I'm going to try it. So I dropped Steve Heller's name and got my foot in the door, and, and I was able to present my portfolio to Michael. And he needed someone, and I got a shot at it. But I actually started on January 1st, which technically Pentagram, I think, was supposed to be closed that day, but they forgot to give everyone a holiday. So I was like one of five people in the office on my first day at Pentagram, like just with this big shitty grin on my face because I was so happy to be there. It's <laughs> amazing. So tell us one of the most, if not the most important thing you learned from Michael, and then give us one juicy bit on Armin. The most important thing I learned from Michael is to just to be kind and generous with your designs. He has no limit on sharing ideas and sharing his brilliance. He'll sit in meetings, and if an idea occurs to him, he'll sketch it and hand it over to the client at that moment. He doesn't pick up papers when he leaves. He doesn't critique unnecessarily to make himself feel bigger. He's just beyond kind and generous, and that's what I want to be in my life. Isn't he the smartest person you've ever met? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. But I don't know. I mean, there's a loaded I don't, I don't, question. But <laughs> that really is only one there. answer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a shot in hell in learning that from him. I, I don't think I, I don't have that brain, but I, hopefully I can condition myself to have that heart. And so at the time, uh, Armin was creating and writing and blogging for Speak Up and starting all of yes. his other internet empires. Were you privy to anything that he was doing with Speak Up at the time? That was really in its heyday. Armin used to come in very early every day. I don't know how he was managing work and children and a wife and living in Brooklyn and everything that he does. It it always just seemed like such a large volume. Especially at Pentagram, you can lose your individuality when you're a designer there. It's hard to be anything but Michael Beirut's designer when you're at Pentagram. Why would you want to be anything else? That's what you're there to learn from. So it it was really refreshing to have Armin at my left maintaining an individual identity and also being at Pentagram. I I really appreciated that example. Any juicy tidbits you can share? (laughs) It's funny you ask that way. One of the the things I remember most about Armin is he liked to use food words to describe design. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, that's delicious. That's juicy. That's so yummy. Like, that was one. I don't remember. I don't know why. I always thought his designs looked so gentle and friendly and warm, which is so surprising coming out of this big dude. Like, he always created the sweetest little 
pieces for Michael that were just, they're always very friendly, I find. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So, Bobby, you got your undergraduate degree at Virginia Commonwealth and also your graduate degree here at the School of Visual Arts. And then you went to Yahoo Internet Life magazine. What was Yahoo Internet Life magazine? <laughs> was it an actual paper magazine? Was it an online magazine? It was, it was a paper magazine with a, with a very large uh, distribution. And I'd actually worked at one magazine previous to oh, that. Oh, what was that? It was called Gear, which was a, a lad mag. It was like Maxim. It was, it you was... are such a man. You really are. <laughs> you are just the epitome of a man. Well, when you go for a first job, it was incredible because I graduated and then I'm in this environment where they're shooting bikini models and I was like yes I've hit the jackpot you know I'm like I'm like 22 years old (laughs) Um, so that was that was incredible and I I did that for a year and then I went to Yahoo Internet Life and and that actually came from one of the things that's been so kind of important is being generous um, and and nice as Jennifer was saying about Michael Beirut Rim Duplessis was somebody that I knew because he's actually from my same hometown in Hampton Virginia and Rem is the art director of the New York Times magazine section Yep. And so at the time, Rim had been in the magazine world for a while and was really making a name for himself. And I was just this kind of young brat out of school that was just eager and big-eyed, and I would do anything that he said. And and he had heard about an opening at Yahoo Internet Life. So um, I went and interviewed and and got it and worked with a great team there. And I did that for about a year uh, before I went back to school to, to SVA. So then you got a job with Brian Collins. Speaking of no sleep, is it true that when Brian brought donuts to the office at 4 o'clock, you all knew that it was an all-nighter ahead? Yeah, it was, it was typically like donuts and Skittles and M&Ms and Gatorade. And it was, it was like, oh, yes, you know, oh, I love this. And then you realize that you're going to be there for a while. And so how did Brian recruit you? Did you go after the job? Did he find you? He's one of the pickiest people in the business in terms of who he wants to work with. And I would say that nearly everyone, if not everyone that's ever worked for him, has gone on to find their own greatness as designers and as business executives of all sorts. So what was that like? Well, it, it all started from SVA, from the program. Brian Collins was one of our thesis teachers in our final year. And I've never been the type of person to sit back and let things happen. So if I saw an opportunity, I would really go for it. Brian was incredibly generous with his time. I could talk to him on a Saturday. I could talk to him on a Sunday. I could talk to him at midnight. I could talk to him at 8 in the morning. Like, he was always available. I don't think he sleeps, truly. I didn't realize it then, but he was just like, the, the access was incredible. And I could tell that he cared. And so for people like Brian and and many others in the program, I just worked my ass off to try to show that I could do what they did because I was just trying to get better. So I was just soaking it up. I was just the sponge. And I think that some of that eagerness he saw as being a um, a benefit. So a couple of weeks after the program, I would shoot him an email here and shoot him an email there. And he said, oh, can you come in tomorrow at 4 o'clock? Sure, I'll be there. And... Like a couple hours later, a couple of days later, I was sitting in a conference room in this massive building on 49th Street at Ogilvy, and I was just like this kid in a candy store, just so happy to be there. So I just worked my butt off and didn't sleep for two years. So tell me about how that occurred. Here you have a group of people, some of the great young minds in design and branding working in this organization. People like 
you, Alan Dye, John Fulbrook, Mark Kingsley. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. And and every one of you has gone on to achieve real significant success on your own. And from what I understand, you guys did work around the clock every day. Was there ever a time where that you all looked around and thought, what am I doing? Why am I working like this? I find now so many people, whether it be students or or young entry-level designers that, that I know or speak to or talk to or try to help, that they are very limited with how much they actually want to work, quotes intended here. So how did he motivate you to do that? How did he make you feel good about wanting to do that? Well, there were two things. One is I always felt I had to work as hard as possible and do more than I was asked to be successful. It was something that I learned when I was young. My dad would always tell me to do more than what the teacher's giving you. If they're giving you a 500-word report, do a 1,000. If they're telling you to be here at this time, go early, stay after class, that type of thing. I did that at SVA, and that's Jennifer and I really got along because we were the only ones there at 4 in the morning working on our projects. And then that carried over into working at a place like, like Ogilvy where the hours varied, but they were intense. And we were working for massive companies and doing stuff that they typically wouldn't do. So we were really pushing the brands that we were working with to do things that were exciting, to do things that um, were groundbreaking and different, and it was a huge opportunity. At the same time, Brian did a great job of putting us right in the middle of it. Like he would drop you in the deep end and say, swim, and you'd have to do it. And those that could keep their heads above water stayed and moved on to do something hopefully equally as, as good or, or, you know, striving to get to that point. So one was I think the people that were there all had tremendous work ethics. But then at the same time, Brian would really push you. He's like a wizard in some ways yes, he where he, he can get you excited about what you're doing and make you feel like you can take on the world. And then he would say, okay, now do it, and we would. And sometimes we would fail and fail horribly. But then there's another day. The same question I asked Jennifer about Michael. What's the one of the most, if not the most important thing you learned from Brian? I learned how to talk about the work in a way that people who don't understand design, people who aren't visual people, people who are number crunchers, how to talk about design in a way that they could understand and move them in a, in a way that um, that they would then accept these crazy ideas to do something that was far beyond what they thought was possible. Brian is one of the best storytellers I've ever witnessed. He speaks magic. He really does. After working at Big, you went on the client side for a couple of jobs. So you were the design director at Jazz at Lincoln Center, and then you also were working at Nokia in London. How did you get together? How did you decide to start your own business? How did you... Well, so now around this time, as we're starting to work in, in different companies, we started to understand how design could affect a company both externally and internally. So we were able to better empathize with the audience and, and the client. And we would discuss it all the time. We would have dinner or drinks or we would text each other at the late nights because when I was at Big working till midnight, she was at NYC 2012 working till midnight. So we would text each other and and still ask for that honest feedback. And that honest feedback was rare. So we needed people that we could trust. And that was, I think I was that for Jennifer, but she definitely was that for me. She was somebody who I could get 
an honest feedback, but also have gone through the same education and background. Yeah, I think we we definitely shared a vocabulary for design and sort of the same heart and the same gut, but we came to it from different experiences. Well, he was asking me questions about concept. I was learning craft from him. I was asking him questions about my typography. I was asking questions about my color. I was asking him questions about my layout. How do I make this really work? How do I bring this together? So we were we were using each other and, and just trying to get stronger from each other's strengths. And so did you make a conscious decision to learn everything you could while you were in the environments that you were in in order to start the business and go and seek jobs that would help educate you in the language of business? Or did you decide to start your business just sort of on a bad day for both of you at the companies you were both working at? It was really strategic. I mean, the same way in college with a plan, you go into your professional life with a plan. And we enjoyed working together. It became a habit while we were in design school. And we would want to pursue freelance, but we were so totally dedicated to our personal jobs that the only way to ever take on freelance was to share it. We would do all of our freelance projects together because one night I would be locked up and I couldn't touch something so he could help. The other night he could be locked up and I could help. So we continued very naturally this partnership throughout our professional career and just saved up and just did it for years and years and years until the time was right. And what made the time right? Was it the Girl Scouts? There there were a couple of things. I think one was we had learned and, and tried to push ourselves to be in really good positions at these different companies. So then when the opportunity arises, um, then to take it. So then Girl Scouts came up and we moved on from our full-time positions to tackle that. So you left Nokia and Jennifer, you left Pentagram, mm-hmm. and you started OCG, the original Champions of Design. I'm sure you've answered this question 8 million times, but I need you to answer it for me. Tell me about your name, OCD, the original Champions of Design. This better be a good story. I don't, I, I don't know who, who should answer it. As they stare at each other and it, it, silence. It's, it's really de- – it's a very deliberate name. It's a very outrageous name, but it's it's a, also a very honest name. No one drinks design Kool-Aid longer or deeper than we do. And when we were naming our company, we were watching Jimmy Fallon a lot. And we were trying to think of what would sound awesome if The Roots introduced us, which would be the original champions of design. <laughs> but at the same time – The same advice we give to our clients is if you're not a little bit uncomfortable with it, it's probably not worth your time. It's probably not going to be memorable. Why commit to it? And so with the acronym, it is a little bit uncomfortable making, but it's also completely honest about who we are and what we do. Every detail needs to be obsessed over. Every detail needs to be correct and understood. And we take it really seriously to a point that, you know, if you're not ready for an OCD firm, we're probably not right for you. Did you have any other names as contenders, any other second or third choices that you might have gone with instead? Not really. I think it was just oh, like... Oh, yes, we, you do. None that I could think of. I think I think we we hit it off and, and we just kind of ran with it. We, we loved it. I mean, there were some like way before we were thinking about doing, you know, when we were in school, we were thinking about things, but... Like... Yeah. I don't know. There was like you always start with like Martin and Kynan, yeah. Kynan and Martin, Jennifer, Jennifer and Bobby, and Bobby. Bobby like, and that, Jen- sounds, like, 
sounds like, you know, some kids on the beach trying to, like, do logos or something. Yeah, Jennifer and Bobby does have that sense of, like, woo, surfboards. We should be, it should be on, like, an album cover for children. It's not not who we are at all, and it's not our mission in in design. And at the same time, something like Kynan and Martin or Martin and Kynan was equally stale for us. It was something where it didn't really embody who we are. It, It didn't really tell... Um, clients and people that we're going to be working with, what we're going to do for them. Had no point of view. Now, your mission on your website, your self-described sort of plan as designers, you say that you're a branding and design agency. And knowing you the way that I do, I sense that that is very specific language that you've chosen to describe what you do and even how you do it. So talk about this combination of branding and design and even the notion that branding is there before design. Well, when you're starting a business, when you're reading the books and listening to the uh, radio and all of that stuff, and they always say, oh, you need to have a focus, you need to have a focus. Well, the thing that got us excited is branding, the thing that, that we want to be working on and working on for the life cycle of our company is developing brands, brand identity systems. But at the core of that for us, we live and breathe design. What we learned in the SVA program is that design and strategy are one and the same. And so we are working with our clients directly. We believe that um, our designers need to work with the clients and, and be in the room and hear the feedback and be able to defend the work and present we believe that then that energy, that excitement, that frustration actually moves the work forward. And we can best articulate who the brand is by developing a really close-knit relationship with our clients. That's why we are branding and, and design. So talk about some of your projects. You got your business started. Uh, you jump-started your business with the Girl Scouts, which must have been terrifying on a whole number of levels. First, how do you redesign a logo that was done by Sawbass? The second is, here is this brand that is on the world stage, and you know that everyone is going to be looking at it. Even if it hadn't been previously designed by Sawbass, you know that the whole world would be looking at what this brand new agency with a very unusual name is doing to this sort of American icon. So first of all, how did you get the job? What gave the Girl Scouts the sense that they could trust their venerable brand with people that were just starting out in business? A lot of it has to do with relationships and working with people who trusted us. So in previous projects, we had worked with teams of people that really started to understand our process. And along the way, we were building trust with them. So uh, when... One of them went to the Girl Scouts to be the chief marketing officer. She wanted someone that she could trust to help get things on track. That's when we came into Girl Scouts and just started to assess where they were as a brand in 2010. They had a beautiful mark designed by Saul Bass in 1978. But what we found out was in 1978, they didn't have desktop publishing. They didn't have computers where everybody from a marketing director to a uh, a troop leader to a parent 
could make a branded Girl Scout piece. And so what we had to do was quickly understand how materials were being made at Girl Scouts all across the country, and then from there work to do what we did best, or what we do best, is build a system or a scenario to be able to address that. We were hired because the client had been through the process, and she trusted that that process would get her the end result she wanted. It wasn't that she knew we came to the relationship with the experience we needed, but she knew that we would get the experience we needed during the research and during the interviews and during the discussions to deliver the product that she wanted in the end. It's such a collaborative process that we go through, and it's so rigorous, and we're up late every night making sure that we're not going to fuck up Saul Brass's brand. <laughs> it is absolutely terrifying to 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 have that dropped in, in your lap. And she knew that we wouldn't quit in, until we arrived at a solution that everyone was comfortable with. Yeah, I mean, we... we yeah, it wasn't the business, it was the process. Originally, I mean, we, we had the holy shit moment where it was like, well, that's Saul Bass. You can't, you can't mess with that. <laughs> <laughs> but if we didn't do it, somebody was. Um, somebody was going to go in and completely fuck it up and throw some gradients on it and say, you know what, this is the latest Photoshop filter and this is the thing that all the kids are doing, so let's do that. And that was the last thing that we were going to do. We wanted to approach it with integrity. And the discovery we made is that it wasn't the mark that needed to be updated. It was the mark that needed a system. The Girl Scouts had a stamp and they had a beautiful, beautiful stamp for many, many years. And when that stamp was created, that's what a brand needed. But like Bobby was saying, as people evolve towards PowerPoint and as people evolve towards word processing and desktop printers, a stamp isn't enough. They need a typeface. They need a color. They need a bit of inspiration and whimsy and a point of view. So what we were able to do through all of our research and our partnership with even like we met with brownies and collaged with them. Like <laughs> I was a brownie. Okay. Me too. I was a brownie and I still have my brownie pins. Fantastic. Well, meeting with them and, and seeing what they're looking for, we wanted to be able to put the brand all the way down in the girls' hands and have them still be able to execute on brand. One of the big things we did was we reviewed all of the illustration styles that we were using and we migrated it all to Girl Scout notebook style. So their illustration style can now be executed by all the girls because it looks like writing in a notebook. You can hire, you know, Julia Rothman to do it beautifully and professionally, or you can just let a kindergartner draw the car wash and both of them are going to be on brand. So it, it was coming to the mark and figuring out why it's not working for them right now. And it's not because Saul Bass didn't draw a gorgeous mark. He did. It just needed a world around it. And the one modification we had to make to the mark was to add that tip to the bottom because the Saul Bass logo was in that cloud, so the bottom was rounded. But the historical mark for the Girl Scouts is a trefoil with a point on the bottom. And they would just fight with each other, and nobody knew how to use them. So by adding the tip to the cloud, all of a sudden the whole system was unified, and they were able to have their Nike swoosh, and they were able to make tons of patterns, and the girls can draw it on everything. And then instead of having a four-pointed cloud that anybody could have, they have their ownable trefoil everywhere. And you change the angle of the neckline of the women in the mark. And it got so much hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that was the most controversial aspect, the neckline. Are you kidding me? You, If you're going to add a point, you have to then rebalance the proportion in certain ways. And we straightened out the necks and added bangs to update the look a little bit and make it a little bit more timeless. And it was amazing 
how many people have no fear in picking up email and letting you know exactly what they think about the work that you're doing? How did you manage through that? Because it is. I stopped looking at stuff. It's a, it's, first just, of all, it is a gorgeous system. I, I've actually <laughs> written about the system quite substantially. It's it's in a number of my books. I happen to think it's gorgeous. That being said, there were a few people out there that had some issues with the neckline or with the bangs or with the point. How do you manage all of that opinionating? I mean, I've gone through it too. It's devast- I find it devastating. I don't know about how you manage to get through it, but having that much feedback thrown at you without everybody understanding the strategic sort of foundation of everything that you did can make it really challenging to do it. For me, all the credit goes to our client. I think if the client stands behind the work, the work is solid. And the client went through the process, they believed in it, they fell in love with it, and they were committed to it, and it doesn't change. I think the outrage is watching things like JCPenney get undone, watching things like Berkeley get undone. That's the stuff that breaks your heart when public opinion matters. <laughs> you need to do public opinion on the front end. You need to do rapid prototyping. You need to be testing. You need to be going out there and making things and seeing how people respond to it before it's finished. You can't just go into a room with a finished logo and say, you love this, right? <laughs> you need to be having those conversations ahead of time. You need to be making sure everyone believes in it. And then you go out there and you need to expect dissenters. If you're not creating memorable change, if people aren't shocked and surprised, then you might be wasting your time. Well, I think it's inevitable now for that global conversation that ensues after any mark that's known in in any way is brought to market. The most unfortunate circumstance we've seen is with the college in California that redesigned one of their symbols, their emblems, and a moveon.org petition arrived with 50,000 signatures demanding that the mark be changed back. I never, ever thought we'd be living in a day and age where people would take the time to respond to a moveon.org petition for a university logo. But why do you think that that's bad? Don't you think it's important for there to be the voice of the people to be heard? It's wonderful that people are engaged in branding and people know what branding is now. And it's not trickery anymore. It's not magic. It's not hidden behind the curtain. And it's beautiful that there is engagement. It's unfortunate that the process didn't include those people before. If they had reached out to their audience and they had included them in the process, they would have arrived to a solution together that everyone believed in. But you're not going to make everybody happy. You're going to ruffle some feathers. (laughs) And if if you're doing something where everybody's going to be happy, then it's probably not the right thing. It's not really what I want to be doing. I want to do something that is going to be memorable I want to do something that's appropriate. When there is change just for change's sake, I don't believe in that. But when there is an issue that needs to be addressed, then if it's approached thoughtfully and strategically, then uh, it should move forward. And and so it's, it's frustrating. I personally can't read a lot of the blogs and blog posts. I find a lot of the comments to be soul-crushing. Soul-crushing, but, <laughs> but, but they don't have a full understanding. I'm very aware of when companies post stuff on some of the the blogs and it gets tons of feedback. I'm typically in support of the company because I understand the process. I know what they're going through and, you know, you're hoping for change. And that's what I want to see most. I'm, I'm an advocate for positive change. Yeah, culture needs leadership. Culture needs vision. 
And as graphic designers, why not step up to the plate and take the risks and push culture a little bit further with the work we do? We might get that push back, but if if we have the right relationships, we can push through it and really move culture forward. Speaking of culture, let's talk a little bit about the work that you've just completed for the WNBA. This is something that I hoped to see since the WNBA first came out with their league, which was the female version of the Jerry West logo, which I felt that the WNBA deserved. I felt like their logo was marginalized. So talk about the process. Talk about how you went about creating this new identity and this new branding system, because it's really quite comprehensive, which also includes a social media strategy. So I'd love to hear how you went about rebranding the WNBA. It was a a very fun project because I love basketball. And Jennifer, Jennifer always joked around. We we would have these conversations with some of the athletes that we just love so much, and they would say, "Oh, do you play basketball?" And she said, "No, I fouled out of every game I played." So, so terrible it was, basketball. Player. It was a it was a, a great project, and um, with the WNBA, similarly to Girl Scouts, we talked to as many people as possible. We worked very closely with the internal team, the the marketing and branding team there, and got as much input as we could. What we realized along the way is that we love the the WMEA players, but they're nowhere close to as famous as the guys. Well, they're also, you know, one teensy-weensy percentage as evolved as as a brand and as an organization. I mean, what are they out now, 20 years? Uh, it was 17. 17 years. So 1997, I think, was the first year. And uh, we worked very closely with them to uh, realize that they needed – it was time for them to grow up. They kind of hit that, that puberty stage and, and then they could become their own brand. And, uh, and so what we were able to do is use the most ownable asset, which was their WNBA ball, this ball that has an orange panel and an oatmeal panel, the, the color with the seams, basketball did, did seams. You, did you call it oatmeal or was that, a, that an was, asset that they previously that had was determined? A, an asset that they previously yeah. determined. It's very very J.Crew, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> and, um, and so we were able to leverage the color of the ball and that became the overarching brand color. And at the same time, we were able to make the mark more closely related to the NBA mark so that they, they grew up a little bit. Now, was that something that was difficult to persuade them to do. I mean, it's interesting that people that know the NBA logo and know that it's Jerry West, I mean, there's there's probably a a diminishing number of people that know that that's Jerry West embedded in that logo. I mean, NBA will be very happy about that. (laughs) Yeah. So, So was it something that you had to go to them and persuade them to do as, as a strategy or as a tactic? How did, how did you get them to do that? Well, our our challenge is enormous because Title IX created a flood of female athletes. The, the opportunity for women to participate in sports is huge. Title IX did not, however, create female sports fans. Mm. So there's women lining up to fill the courts, but the ticket sales aren't there to fill the seats. And that was really where we had to start, is how do we make rock stars? We got lucky. We have Brittany Griner, who can dunk. Unbelievable. Sky- she is unbelievable. <laughs> she is amazing. Skylar, who's just 
gorgeous and, and can talk and can play and can handle the ball. And then Elena, who of the three of them probably came in with the least expectations and of the three of them blew everyone out of the water and, and just really was a leader on her team in the first year. So they're creating headlines with their personal stories. And what we want to do is put a brand out there that shines a spotlight even brighter. Now when someone wins the championship, they all get orange caps. The Lynx who won are playing with orange shoes now. Their high tops are orange. Their coaches in orange heels. What's more feminine and memorable than that? <laughs> awesome. Being girls on the court, having their ownable brand, but then getting rid of that shield that you're talking about and drafting in that rectangle. That rectangle means world-class basketball now. The league has launched a viral media effort under an I Am Logo Woman theme. And players and fans are encouraged to post shots and photos of themselves going to the basket using that I Am Logo woman hashtag. Um, how was that working out? How was that playing out so far? It was incredible. It was something that um, at the launch, the president, Laura Ritchie, really set up. And we just watched it on Twitter burn like wildfire. I mean, you had players that were laying down on the court in the logo to see if, you know, if I am logo woman. And I never thought a media campaign could do that. And it did. And it was great. It was really, really smart on their part because the advertising funds were limited. And so to be able to say, you know what, this is a a mark that's made up of a little bit of everyone in the league. And a lot of people know who the person in the NBA mark is, but I'm not telling who the person in the WNBA mark is. So you tell me. You tell us. and Project uh, yourself into it. Unbelievable. That's how brands are made. (laughs) Um, The last question I want to ask you is about your most recent presentation at the AIGA conference. You presented on the main stage with a lecture that was titled, You Have No Idea Who We Are. Why that title? We're taking the main stage at the AIGA conference where George Lois is presenting, where the New York Times is presenting. There are all these amazing, well-established, big names bringing huge bodies of work to the stage. And here we are three years in. There was no other way to walk out on stage and to just be like, you know what? You have no idea who we are, but give us 20 minutes and and we're going to try to show you. Well, I think more and more people will continue to get to know you because of your amazing, beautiful work. Thank you so much for being on Design Matters, Jennifer and Bobby. Thank you. Thank you very much, Debbie. To find out more about Jennifer Kynan and Bobby Martin, visit their website, Original Champions of Design. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.